Awesome, awesome. Happy Sunday, everybody. It is uh, truly an honor and a privilege to get to share God's word with you today. My family and I have been attending Southcrest for almost eight years now, and it's just been a blessing to be a part of this church family and um, to be a part of this congregation and, and just share life with all of you. Today, we're going to be in the back half of James chapter 1. So last week, Brandon talked about the first half of James chapter 1, which is about overcoming trials and persevering through some things. And the back half of James 1 is really about doing something with our life that matters for Christ. James pulls zero punches in the five chapters of his book, and if the first part of this message feels like a kick in the shins, it's not me, it's James. Because it, it, it kicked me in the shins too. Today's message is really going to be in two parts. Part one is we're going to dissect James 1, 19 through 27. We're going we're to walk through the scripture and understand what James is saying. And then part two is really going to be about application. And what does this all mean? Why are we here? Why does James say this? in his word, in his book. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphone or whatever you have with you, I'd ask you to turn to James 1, starting in verse 19. If you don't have any of those things, the words will be up on the screen. And for the people in the back, I've now changed Bibles, and I'm sorry, I told you ESV last time and then read out of the ASV in the first service, so that was kind of confusing. Apologies for that. Um, let's get started. James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray before we jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace and your sovereignty in our lives. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we could have a relationship with you, something that we could never earn, but something that you give freely to us. We thank you for that. And Lord, we ask that today you convict us, that you move in our hearts, and that you excite us to be a part of what you're doing all around us, which is your redemption story for humanity. We love you, and we ask that you're honored this morning, that you're glorified through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump right in. Starting in verse 19, James stops us right at the very beginning with this word, no. When he says, know this, what he's saying is, or what he's implying is that what's following is understood. It's assumed. It's a fact. It's not negotiable. Okay, and what does he say? He says, let every person be quick to hear, 
slow to speak and slow to anger. Did you catch that? Every person, not the people it's easy for. Matt posted something funny on his Instagram account the other day that said something to the effect of, your personality test isn't an excuse for not following God's commands. And that's legit for me, because if you were to look at a personality test of Bennett, the thing you would for sure not see is patience, the ability to sit back and listen, to not voice my opinion about something. Um, man, I love to jump in the middle and, and talk. Everyone needs my opinion. Where would they be without it, right? That's the sickness of my brain. But that's not what James is saying here. James is saying, hey, if you want to engage your communities and you want to see healing in your relationships and you want to see healing in our culture and in your marriage and in your friendships, shut your mouth. Just stop. Just listen. Your perspective is not everyone else's perspective. There is truth, no doubt, but your Worldview, what you come into a conversation with is not what someone else comes into the conversation with. The, the thing that's true is this, God's word. Everything else we learn through listening, through listening. And he says that's applicable to everyone. And I know James, and I'm going to go here. James didn't have social media when he was writing this book, but I bet you if he did, his commentary probably would have said, this is inclusive of your thumbs and the things you put into your keyboard and say to other people. There is an immense opportunity for us to voice our opinion, to let people know what we think. I've been that person. I've been that person. Nobody could tear somebody down on social media like I could, trust me. But like it says in 2 Timothy 2.14, it says this, Remember, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does what? No good, but only ruins what? The hearers. Man, sometimes it's just better to sit back and listen. And understand someone else's perspective. The world's going to be okay if they don't know our opinion about every single thing every seven seconds. It really will. It really will. Is the juice worth the squeeze when we argue with people? It, probably not, right? Probably not. And so we should ask ourselves, is what we're about to share or say is it going to inhibit my ability to have a conversation with someone about the love of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in the world? Because if so, we should think twice. Why? Because when we go down that route, like he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, what is the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God is what he imputes on us through salvation, when he chooses us and elects us and calls us his own, he gives us his righteousness. See, there's two kinds of righteousness in the world. There's man's righteousness, which is our feeble and foolish attempts to make our good things outweigh our bad things. We're a pretty good person. I'm a moral person. 
And then there's God's righteousness. It says, on your best day, it's not good enough. Why? Because you're not perfect. And I think we can all agree that we're not perfect. So God imputes his perfection on us. He takes our garbage, gives us his beauty. And when we go down this route of being quick to speak and we don't listen and we don't hear, we don't help bring to life what God is trying to do, which is ultimately reconcile those around us back to himself. Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Simply put, James is saying, get rid of sin in your life. Get rid of sin. It's a blocker. It's an inhibitor. It's a wall that stands between you and closeness with God. Does God save us from our sin? Yes. But when we choose to continually walk in habitual sin, we throw up a wall between what God wants to do in our lives and what we allow him to do in our lives. And James is saying, you got to throw away sin. And when you do that, you're able to take the implanted word, which is God's word that he gives you through salvation, through the Holy Spirit. And you're able to make that full in your life. That's what he's after. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, and it says, there will, there will be three effects of nearness to Jesus. Humility, happiness, and holiness. If those three things are missing in our life, man, we should be reevaluating if we have a sin problem in our life. Verse 22 and 24 says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. To borrow a saying from our friends at Nike, James is saying, just do it. Just do it. You heard it, now do it. It's in God's word, now put it into action. What's taking so long? Just do it. I love this. He, he, he uses this term, deceiving ourselves. Is that not the worst kind of deception? Our own ignorance? So embarrassing. Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But we keep fooling ourselves, thinking that, I'm, I'm reading and I'm, do, I'm, 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 in, I'm, I'm taking in, but not doing. James says, pointless, pointless, deceiving yourselves. This is also true for people who look intently at God's word. Well, what's that mean? Well, maybe you show up to all the nights of worship. You go to every life group meeting. You volunteer at every special event. You're putting stuff in your brain. You read your Bible five hours a day. But if you're not doing, if you're not getting your hands dirty, James says, it's moot. It doesn't matter. Because people who 
legit look intently into God's word should be led to action. Knowing, who cares? The world is tired of Christians who know. They're tired of Christians who know. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those. There's not a lot that do. There's not a lot that do. Not enough. Not enough that do. Man, I, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in church, and there was this thing that we had called Bible drill. Anyone ever heard of Bible drill, or am I getting that old? Okay. Um, I'm not that old, I, but this is a thing of the past, I think. Um, so Bible drill, you'd stand there on this line, and you'd have your Bible, and they would call out a scripture reference or a verse or whatever, and you'd quickly flum through the page, and then you'd step forward. And then hopefully you weren't lying, and you actually found it, because they would call on you, and then you'd have to read the verse, right? Well, not to brag, but I won a state championship in Bible drill. Um, this is some circa, circa late 90s, mid 90s. Um, look it up. It's probably on Google somewhere. Uh, probably not, actually. Um, I knew everything about the Bible. But I could recite any scripture verse. But when I first got married, when I first started having kids, when I first got into a career, my heart was disgusting. I was so lost. I thought I had it all figured out because some things were going well for me until they weren't. And man, Jesus broke me. And he said, knowing is nothing. Doing is everything. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Well, what's the perfect law? What's the law of liberty? A lot of theologians have dry pens writing about what this means, but, and I'm hardly an authoritative figure on scripture, but I will, I will t I'll tell you what I think it is. I think the perfect law is God's law of perfection, the one that none of us can live up to. I think the law of liberty is the recognition of God's grace in our lives, of my standards perfection. You can't live up to it. Now this law of liberty exists, which is my grace. And out of that law, we should be compelled to act because of God's favor and grace in our own life. But I don't know that we do that enough. So when we read God's word, it reminds us of our sin nature, or it reminds us of our flesh, and then it reminds us of what Christ did for us on the cross. And the ultimate response to that is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. James says that the people who hear and don't forget and who actually do, they'll be blessed in their doing, not blessed in their thinking about it, not blessed in their pondering, not blessed in any of that. They'll be blessed in their doing. They'll be blessed when they roll up their sleeves, when they get their fingernails dirty, when their back is tired, when their knees are weak, when they're engaged with the least of these, 
doing the will and work of Christ. Because isn't that what Jesus did? You know, Jesus didn't walk up to people and say, hey, um, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? That wasn't the first thing that he said to them. He got there for sure, but that wasn't, that wasn't the opener. Jesus met people's physical need and their spiritual need. And we as a body of believers need to get real with ourselves. And we need to get over the inconvenience of meeting people's physical need in order to meet their spiritual need. It is a cop-out to simply invite a friend to church. You should do that, but you should earn the ability to do that by serving them, by meeting their needs. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we should do too. Verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in verse 26, we see a negative from James. We see what religion is not. And then in verse 27, we see the affirmative, what pure religion is. So what, is relig- what, what isn't religion? Well, religion isn't someone who hears a bunch of stuff, lets it go into their brain, and then runs their mouth. That's not religion. That's not what it is. Incredibly displeasing to God. I don't know if you guys know this, and we're going to get into this in James 2, but your tongue, this is incredibly convicting for me because I'm like the most sarcastic person on the planet, and my sarcasm, it lands like one out of every 10 times, but I still think I should be sarcastic. Um, Our our tongues are incredibly powerful tools to build someone up or to cut them down at the knees. So what are we going to do? Because a religion that's worthless, according to the Bible, is to hear all this great stuff, to hear all of God's word, and then to run our mouth, to not have self-control in the things that we say. So are we gossiping? Are we cursing? That's a tough one for me, especially when I'm quick to anger. Or are we building people up? Well, what's pure religion in verse 27? Well, It's being the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what it is. It's caring for the least of these. It's getting out of our comfort zone and lifting other people up who may not look like us or act like us or come from the same place as us or have the same ethnicity as us. That's what pure religion is. It's action. It's getting engaged with the people who can't help themselves despite its inconvenience. How funny is it that we'll see someone sitting on the side of the road with a flat tire on our way to church? We go, man, it'd be nice to stop and help them, but I got to get to church. I hope that we're the church that will pull over and help and then call somebody who may already be on their way or already here and say, hey, we got to help a brother or sister out. And then we'll, 
we'll get to church. I think that's what God would desire from us. Amos 5, verse 21 through 24, God talks to people who have all the right language, all the right things. They've, they, they, they're doing all the right things. They're checking all the right boxes, but there's something missing. And this is what he says. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God does not care about our religious practices when we're not seeking justice for other people, when we're not meeting the needs of other people. He would prefer that we would put down the drums and the guitars and go engage the people around us for him if we had to choose. We should do both, but if we had to choose. He says something similar in Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Lord on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We take that last little bit, Micah 6, 8, and we put it on the little tapestries in our bathrooms and on our hallways in our house. And that's legit. We should, we should do those things. But we forget about the couple verses before where God's excoriating the Jewish people for not seeking justice for treating the people around them like garbage. Sorry, I had to find a, the right word to say there. <laughs> I'm being sanctified too. So I know we're through verse 27, but we're not done yet. Why does James compel us to do this? Is it because it's good for us? Is it to score religious points? To make God love us more? No. We do get some benefit when we do good things, but that's not why. That's not why. If you don't know, I want you to know this morning that God is inviting you. If you're saved, if you have been called and reconciled to Christ. God's inviting you into an incredible opportunity, a calling, a mission, a purpose. And that purpose is to be an active participant in his redemption plan for humanity. Too many Christians think that our life's goal is to just make it through. We live our life, we follow Jesus, we put our trust in him, 
And then we sing these songs like, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Is it a beautiful thing when someone's soul goes to be with Jesus? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But that's only partly theologically accurate. Because when we leave this earth and our souls go to be with Christ and we're buried here, we know in John 5 that when Jesus comes back, he's going to resurrect our dead bodies and reunite them with our souls. And we're going to live with Jesus on a new heaven and a new earth, one that's restored back to perfection. And we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. God created man. He created the earth. He created all the things in the earth. And he declared it, what? Very good. And then in Genesis 3 through 11, we see the fall. Cain kills Abel. And it gets progressively worse from there until God sends a flood. And we have downplayed the flood for the sake of our children's stories. But the story of the flood and Noah wasn't as romantic as Noah and his family and two kinds of every animal hopping onto a giant boat. People were drowning, screaming, banging probably on Noah's boat to get in, recognizing that it was too late. God destroyed humanity. But then in Genesis 12, all the way through Revelation 22, we see the most beautiful love story unfold. And that is God's redemption story for us and for earth. So we as Christians don't have to be afraid to get involved in the things of our culture and the things that are going on around us. We should be involved. Unfortunately, we have a lot of causes and all these things that have popped up because we're not doing our job. We're not doing our job. But taking care of the planet, reaching out to someone who needs a hand and lifting them up and encouraging them and taking them in and supporting them, that's a tale as old as time. Some politician didn't invent that. God did. God did. So we should step into that. We should step into that. We are part of a beautiful story. And we are meant for this place and to play a part in God's story for this place, redeeming it back from sin, back to himself, back to perfection, which we'll ultimately see when Jesus comes back. That peace, that shalom that we had, that full recognition of Emmanuel, God with us in the garden, that's coming again. And we have an opportunity to help manifest that in our everyday life. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Are you a doctor? Are you a construction worker? Are you a teacher? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you in the business world? Let me ask you, are you going to work looking for opportunities to, where can I secretly share the gospel and not get fired? Where can I corner somebody in the coffee room and ask them if they're going to heaven or hell? Or are you going to work and you're going to be the best daggum doctor or construction worker or teacher or business person or whatever it is that you are for the glory of Christ? 
integrating that into our everyday life. In God's economy, there isn't this secular world and a spiritual world. It's just his world. It's just his world. Romans 8, 22 through 23 says, for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons and what the redemption of our bodies. The earth and humanity is groaning out for redemption. And if we've been saved We now have the opportunity and purpose that surpasses anything else that we could possibly do. But it doesn't mean throwing aside the talents and gifts that God's given you to be a construction worker, a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. It means to do those things for the glory of God, to integrate those things into our everyday life. So if we're a part of God's restoration story for the planet and for the people around us, every single thing that we do matters to God. It really does. John 3.30 says, he must become greater, I must become less. And that's really what this whole thing in James and life is all about. How do I take what God has gifted me with, the resources that God has given me, and as Teddy Roosevelt would say, get action. How do I make much of him and less of me for the glory of God and the redemption of humanity and the planet back to himself? Like, that is so cool. There is no prize for believers who play it safe. Matthew 25, we see the parable of the talents. And in that parable, a master, a.k.a. God, goes away. And he leaves three servants, one with five talents, one, I think, with two talents, and the other one with one talent. And after being gone for a long time, he comes back and he says, okay, servants, what do you got? And the one with five talents says, master, I know you're a shrewd businessman. I turned your five talents into ten. And the second servant says, Master, I knew you're a shrewd businessman. I took your two talents and I turned it into four. And then he looks at the third servant and he says, what do you got? He said, well, I knew you're a shrewd businessman and I was afraid I was going to lose your one talent. So I buried it in the ground. And now that you're back, here's here's your one talent. Do you know what the master said to that servant? Does anybody remember? Get away from me, you wicked servant. You've done nothing with what I've given you. You've done nothing. There's no prize for playing it safe. I love this story, this quote from Payne Stewart, who was one of my favorite golfers as a young man, a real real childhood hero, actually. But the thing is, Payne was, he was kind of a jerk for a large part of his career. The media loved to hate on him. He was pretty brash and rough in his commentary until he met Jesus. And not long before he died in a plane crash, not long after he won the 1999 U.S. Open, he said this. He said, I'm going to a special place when I die. 
but I want to make sure my life is special while I'm here. Man, can I ask you today to just walk into the invitation that God has for you to be a part of what he's doing all around us? Can I just implore you to ask every morning, hey God, make me awake and attuned to what you're doing around me? Will you help me to be a doer and not just a hearer so that my life matters for something? So that when you do fully restore and redeem earth, this place that we are, I'll be able to look around and see a little bit of the impact that I was able to have for you, that I did in your name. Man, that's, if that doesn't get you jacked up, I don't know what does. There's a lot of people wondering why they're here, what their purpose is. And if you're in Christ, that's your purpose, to use what you have, what God has given you, to be a part in his redemption story for humanity. And it's all about hearing and then doing. Let's wrap up with a couple, couple more points. One of my favorite plays is Les Miserables. And uh, in that play, the lead character, Jean Valjean, has just been released from almost two decades of forced labor. And his first night out on the street, it's cold and it's wet and he's hungry and he's looking for something to eat. No one will take him in because of his prior history as a criminal. And when it looks like all hope is lost, he knocks on the door of a bishop. And that bishop invites him to come inside. The bishop rolls out the red carpet for him, cooks him a hot meal, pulls out his best china, his best silver, serves him this incredible meal. And what does Jean Valjean do? Yeah, in the middle of the night, he says, thanks for the hot meal. And he packs up all the silver and runs away. Doesn't get very far. Next morning, the authorities find him. And they bring him back to the bishop's house. And (laughs) the bishop shows unbelievable grace. He says, Jean, you forgot the silver candlesticks. How silly of you. Here, take these two. And Jean leaves, after much consideration, a changed man. And that grace that the bishop showed him affected the rest of his life to where he becomes a great businessman and employs a lot of people and provides support for his community. And I can tell you, I've shared this with our elder team. One of my visions here in Atlanta is to use one of the talents God's given me, and that's in business and finance, to own a company right here in Coweta County that employs a lot of people. And every ounce of free cash flow that we have goes back to just supporting this community. That's how we take the things that God's given us and we redeem them for his purpose. Let's be like Jean Valjean. Last thing um, before we wrap up is this, uh, this book that we read with our kids. Um, the book is entitled, If Jesus Lived Inside My Heart. And, um, you know, Jesus encourages us to have faith like a child, more, more, more or less. 
to just act. You know, you, as a kid, you, you don't really have a concept of space and time. You just live in the present. And Jesus said, man, you should have faith like that. You should have faith like a child. And I just want to read this little children's book to you. And I hope that this kind of brings it home. It says this, it says, if Jesus lived inside my heart, would other people know? Perhaps he'd use all parts of me to love and shine and glow. If Jesus used my eyes, I think he might just recommend that when I see a child alone, I try to be her friend. I'd offer her some bubble gum or ask if she might like to shoot some hoops of basketball or try out my new trike. Would Jesus use my mouth to say I'm sorry when I'm wrong or offer kind encouragement for friends to get along? I think he'd use my arms to give big, warm and snuggly hugs and hold my baby sister when she's scared of creepy bugs. My hands could make nice cards to send to grandma far away. I'd also rub mom's shoulders when she's had a busy day. I'd always try to do my best so someone else might see that Jesus lives inside my heart and works through little me. And if there were one cookie left, I'd know just what I'd do. I'd split it with my brother because he'd want a cookie too. I know sometimes I make mistakes, I'm messy and I spill. Then what does Jesus think of me? Does Jesus love me still? I think he'd say, I love you child more than you'll ever know. Since you have given me your heart, I'll never let you go. I'll work through you and shine through you just like the brightest light. I'll guide each precious step you take and help you do what's right. And though I live inside of you, I'm here for all to see. When others see your acts of love, they're also seeing me. Notice something about that. There wasn't a spiritual reference in that book. Sharing a cookie? It's not overly spiritual. Giving someone a hug? That's not overly spiritual. Reaching out when someone's scared and hurting? That's not spiritual. But dad, come, does this show someone the love of Jesus? that's what we need to be. That's what God's called us to be. That's what James has compelled us to be in this passage. Let's pray.